Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say we have Bernard Kelly on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, Returning Home, Irish Ex-Servicemen After the Second World War. As I was telling Bernard before we started the interview, I lived in Ireland for a while, and I found it a very interesting place. One of the things I learned about Ireland is that nothing in Irish history is simple. Actually, I think American history is quite simple, but it's nothing compared to um, Irish history. Uh, I, I, you know, you really need a kind of a scorecard to to keep all the the players in their different positions um, in in mind. It's it's really a, it's a little bit like a it's a little bit like a novel. It's a baroque novel. You can, it's, it's hard to it's really hard to understand what's going on. But Bernard does a really terrific job of explaining how something that should be as simple as servicemen returning home. Uh, actually plays into Irish politics and these other things. He makes it quite understandable what what happened to these um, men, and I guess women too, who uh, volunteered to serve with the British during the Second World War. So, Bernard, thanks very much for being on the show. Hello, Marshall. Um, so maybe you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, I'm from, as you can hear, I'm from Ireland. I'm from Galway in the west of Ireland. I um I went to went to school in a place called Athenry, made famous by the song, of course. <laughs> and I did uh, I did my degree in the National University of Ireland, Galway. Did a master's in Edinburgh on the Finnish Russo Finnish War, and then back to Galway for my PhD, where the book came from. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, I'm back in Edinburgh again, working as a postdoc in the Scottish Centre for Diaspora Studies. Mm-hmm. The Russo Finnish War. Even in the United yeah. States, we don't have people that work on that. So <laughs> so that it speaks very well of the uh, of the. Uh, of the educational system there. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, a, it's an event close to my heart, oddly enough. Uh, I know some Finns. That's why I think it's... Um, so how did you come to uh, write this book? It, it's, and I should say, for people that don't know a lot about Irish history, uh, it's a sensitive topic, even today. Yes, it's, it's, a, it's a very sensitive topic. I mean, it's, it's still in the news with the, uh, the pardon for the Irish Army Directors which was introduced there in June of last year. But um, how, I, how I came to the book, well, there's, there's two, two main reasons for the book. Obviously, like I said, it came out of my PhD. And the, the two reasons I did the PhD was, first of all, the historiography of the subject of Irish men and Irish women in the British forces is, is overwhelmingly focused on the actual individual in uniform. So the reasons why they joined up, what happened to them in uniform, where they fought, why they fought. But the story tends to stop then at the end of the war and the assumption generally is in the literature that they just simply came home and got on with their lives. My my thought, my argument has always been that this this can't possibly be the case. I mean, they would have been shaped and altered by the experiences that they had while they were in uniform. But also there was the fact that um, Irish men and women coming back to Ireland after the Second World War didn't have a very clearly defined role in, in post-war Ireland because... You know, if British veterans go back to Britain after the Second World War or American veterans return to America, they're returning to a country that's been victorious. And German and Japanese survivors and veterans going back to their countries, they're going back to the defeated. 
But the fact that Ireland had been neutral during the Second World War meant that when the veterans came back to Ireland after their service in the British forces, um, they faced a very unique and very ambivalent situation. So I felt that there was a big gap, a big gap in the literature there that needed to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the second reason is, is the personal reason, like many, many people in Ireland, I myself and, and, and in fact, my wife have a family connection to the British mm-hmm. forces. Mm-hmm. So um, like when I was doing the research for the book, um, I came across some relatives of mine who lived very, very close to me. And the, the two men that are on the cover of the book are two men from, from uh, Longford. Excuse me, they're both from Longford, and it turned out I, got, I met their families, got the photograph, and it turned out that I'm distantly related to them. <laughs> and they're, they're, both, they're both British veterans. And, uh, but it was particularly my, my wife's family, they're all from the north, and my wife's great-uncle is a man called Richard McGarry, and they nicknamed him, whose nickname was Sterling, because he walked everywhere so fast. He was nicknamed after Sterling Moss, mm-hmm. the, uh, the racing driver. Mm-hmm. But Sterling came back to Belfast in 1945 after suffering a very, very severe trauma while in the Royal Engineers in North Africa and in Greece. Um, and he had his medical care taken care of by the British government because Northern Ireland was and, and still is part of the UK. Mm-hmm. And we often speculated on the dinner table that if, if Sterling had lived in the Republic, if he lived over the border in Monaghan or Galway, where I'm from, um, who would have paid for his medical care and mm-hmm. how would he have been looked after? So that sort of generated the roots of where the book, where the book came from. Mm-hmm. I think our listeners already appreciate how complicated this is. So, yeah. <laughs> so maybe we can start with a little bit of background um, for those people that don't know. I imagine many of the uh, readers of or the listeners to this podcast know a lot about this. But can you give us a, a brief uh, history of uh, of Ireland um, from the Easter Rising to well, actually, let's start before that. A lot of uh, Irishmen served in World War One. How were how were they treated when they got home? But that's, that's, that's an interesting question because about just over 200,000 Irishmen served in the British forces during World War One for a variety of reasons. And when you say Irishmen, obviously Ireland is divided into two political mm-hmm. units, north and south. So you have Northern Ireland, six counties, is still in the UK, still governed from London, even though they have a power-sharing executive in Belfast. And then the southern 26 counties, um, which became independent in 1922 and is now the Republic of Ireland. So when you're talking about Irishmen... You know, you were saying that Irish history is complicated. You can't just talk about Irishmen. You have to find out where they come from and the island, what political or religious background they come well, from. Well, I, I don't mean to interrupt, yeah. but in the United States, if you say that, you're talking about certain parts of New York and Boston. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the other thing, of course. <laughs> so but, how, um, how yeah, were they... So, yeah, so, go sorry, ahead. go on. I was just, how were they treated when they got back? Well, uh, over just over 100,000 Irishmen came back to the island, let's say, after the, second, after the First World War. But the political, the political sort of constellation that they came back to was very, very different, because obviously in 1914, home rule for Ireland, for Ireland had been put on the British statute book. So it meant that it would have been an independent Ireland, but within, within the, um, the British orbit, if you know what I'm trying to say. Mm-hmm. That had been put on the statute book, but had then been suspended for the duration of the war. And the different political divisions on the island, the, the Unionists and the Nationalists and the smaller division in the Republicans, they all decided to use the war for their own their own um, ends. So the Nationalists recommended that Irishmen join the British forces to prove that Ireland could be loyal and get home rule as a, as a, as a consequence of that. The Unionists suggested that their men should join up so that they could show they could be loyal and that home rule would be stopped as a reward for that. And the Republicans then decided to use the cover of the war to stage a rebellion, as they did mm-hmm. in 1916. So the, the political sort of situation that existed in 1914 had totally changed by 1918 when these 100,000 men came back. 
and they found themselves coming into a situation where Irish nationalism, Irish constitutional nationalism that had, had played a part in the British parliamentary system was virtually dead mm-hmm. and it had been completely, almost completely superseded by Sinn Féin, the more separatist, the Republican wing of the Irish independence movement. And in the general election of December 1918, Sinn Féin essentially swept the board in the south and almost pushed the old Irish Parliamentary Party, the Home Rule Party, almost pushed it out of existence. Won the overwhelming majority of seats in the south, and of course, you know, it was the Ulster Unionists who won the seats in the north. Mm-hmm. So it's into this atmosphere that Irish veterans are coming back, and a lot of them would have joined the British forces out of a sense of duty, out of a sense of, you know, fighting for Ireland within the UK, fighting for Home Rule. A lot of them just joined because their mates did or because it was a good job. But then they come back and they find that the political situation has totally changed. It's now Irish separatism that's in the ascendancy and they find themselves in a very, very different orthodoxy in that some of them are seen almost as traitors Mm -hmm. because they would have joined the British forces when uh, there's been rebellions and and everything else going on back in Ireland. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in the book that actually there was some positive disdain toward many of these veterans from uh, Republican corners. Yeah, well, it was 1916, really, that changed everything. I mean, you had Fergal McGarry on the show there a while ago. I heard the podcast talking about the different yeah. factions that went on in 1916. But mm-hmm. really, really, 1916 changes everything in Irish history. And the interesting thing is that 1916 wouldn't have happened only for 1914, only for the First World War. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's the law of unintended consequences. Mm-hmm. But the, the heroicization of the, of the men of 1916, including Patrick Pearce, and, and Eamon de Valera, who survived, the, the sort of, the building up of them as true Republican heroes, and these are the men who were fighting and dying and working for Ireland, meant that the, the Irish veterans of the British forces would have been effectively sidelined. I mean, they just couldn't fit themselves into the new political mm-hmm. situation. They didn't have an obvious political home, nor did they have a, a political voice with which to say that they, they you know, deserve their section of Irish history as well. Mm-hmm. But yes, the, the Republicans would have been mostly disdainful for them. There was a small faction of them who, of, of Republicans who would have targeted ex-servicemen and around about 150 of them were killed during the War of Independence and in the, the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, ex- Irish ex-servicemen were, they were boycotted, they were intimidated, and they were just sort of generally sidelined to push them out of the way because they would have been viewed as somewhat out of the ordinary, outside of the mainstream of what's happening in Ireland. Mm-hmm. But the Really, the important point to make there about Irish ex-servicemen after World War, uh, after World War One, was that they weren't they were never deliberately singled out or targeted by the IRA. Mm-hmm. That it was always based on on very much local prejudices and the, the sort of objectives of the local IRA commander. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, see. what happened in my in my own locality where we where we live at the moment in Longford was there was no campaign against ex-servicemen until the the guerrilla war starts to go against the IRA and ex-servicemen are singled out as being possible informers, possible traitors, mm-hmm. and that's, that's when the, the, camp, the campaign against them kicks off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is another entire story. Maybe your next book. The, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, De Valera and um, uh, Fianna Fáil take power, and uh, they made it known pretty uh, when, when things began to heat up in the 1930s that, that they were going to declare neutrality, isn't that right? It wasn't a surprise for the British when de Valera said that they were going to declare neutrality, was it? Uh, no. Uh, well, it, it shouldn't have been. It might have surprised some figures, but it really shouldn't have been, because this sort of thing had been dis- discussed as far back as the, the Anglo-Irish Treaty debates in 1921. And when the Free State, the Irish Free State was founded in December 1922, and, and W.T. Cosgrave was the first leader of that, 
after Michael Collins' assassination. Um, mm. Even then, in, in the, all the way through the 1920s, when the Irish Free State was a dominion of the, of the British Commonwealth, there were still loud calls for neutrality, loud calls for, co- for non-cooperation with the British forces. Mm-hmm. So that by the time when de Valera came to power with Fianna Fáil in 1932, I mean, nobody should have been surprised that the Irish were going to be, be neutral in the Second World War. Right. And particularly, particularly the Fianna Fáil government, which was, you know, its, its full title was Fianna Fáil, the Republican Party. De Valera was a former 1916 commander. His, his party yes. was stuffed full of former IRA commanders, uh-huh. former, former Civil War fighters. So it yeah. should have been no surprise that that was going to happen. Yeah. Somebody will correct me, but I, if I recall correctly, um, uh, uh, Winston Churchill acted like he was surprised, and then he acted as if he were very angry. Do you know, remember this incident at all? Yes, well, Churchill has always been a bit of an enigma to the Irish. Well, that's because he's it's also Churchill, Churchill's something of a liar. I don't think he, he gets good press, but <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Well, it's just that Churchill would have been probably the, the British cabinet minister at the time coming up to the Second World War, mm-hmm. well, after he was appointed, obviously, to the Admiralty. He would have probably been the British cabinet minister with the most experience of Ireland, yeah. um, because he had been involved in the treaty and involved in the War of Independence and involved in Irish politics for a long time going yeah. back. And so, for for Churchill to be surprised, I I, I would be inclined to disbelieve him to say. He yeah, no, he said, and he said all kinds of impolitic and rather rude things, if I recall. Again, one of our listeners will correct me, but he uh, he had some words. Um, uh, yeah, well, he had he had a way with good words, and he had a way with bad words. Yes, he did. <laughs> so uh, the the war breaks out, and uh, you say that, uh, and this is I thought this was very interesting too. That it's unclear exactly how many um, people from the southern counties, let's put it that way, or the republic. Uh, joined up, sixty thousand is the um, is the figure that you land upon. But but one of the things that you mentioned in the book is that even this figure is used for political purposes. Well, that's right. Well, there there is no clarity on how many joined up because the fact was that Southern Ireland, the twenty six counties, which had changed its name from the Irish Free State to ERA in nineteen thirty seven, so another name change. Um, it was still a British Dominion technically. So there was no restriction on traveling from from Ireland to Britain and vice versa. So there's no way of counting how many people left to join the British forces. So the, the figure of 60,000, between 60,000 and 80,000 was sort of based on Irish military intelligence. During the Second World War, they conducted surveys, they intercepted posts, they talked to prospective recruits, and they built up sort of hypothetical rates of uh, recruitment and wastage. And this is, this is where I get the figure from, from, from the, Irish, the G2, the Irish military intelligence files. But after the, after the Second World War, when Ireland was under a bit of pressure for being, for being neutral, de Valera tried to use higher and higher figures to say that, look, we were neutral, but we were actually on the Allied side. And, you know, de Valera himself often quoted, or his ministers often quoted the figure of 150 or 180,000. But there were Irish Americans in Boston and in New York who were claiming 275,000. <laughs> and I think that the highest one I ever, I ever saw was from an Irish American in Boston who said it was up to 425,000. <laughs> So, I mean, what, what, percentage, what percentage of Ireland would have that been in 1939? <laughs> That's pretty so I, I think the, the Atlantic magazine in 1943 said something like 5% of the Irish population had joined the British forces. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I kind of, yeah. You know, because, I mean, this is, it's an old cliche, but the, 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 if we can call them this, the Irishmen in Boston are more Irish than the Irish. Well, that's yeah. <laughs> distance, distance increases your, your love of your homeland. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. So, um, but you land on this figure of, of, of 60,000, and then you concentrate on, I believe it is 12,000 of them that uh, 
do, do that return home. That is, they come back to uh, the Republic. They come back to the Southern counties to live. That's right. So if we say 60,000 joined the British forces, of that, around about 9,000 died, which is it's a high figure, but it shows that they it are generally joined. Yeah. Well, you know, it's generally one in 22 of yeah. men who joined the forces will die in war. Uh-huh. Um, so this figure is obviously higher for the Irish, but it shows that the Irish tended to join the, the British Army and they tended to join the, the infantry. Mm-hmm which is obviously going to suffer higher casualties. So mm-hmm. there's an over-preponderance of Irish in the, the infantry units in the British Army. So about 9,000 died, and the vast majority of the Irish men, who came ba- Irish men and women who came back decided that they would settle down and live in the UK. Mm-hmm. But British officials suggested in 1945 that around 12,000 had elected to go home because they were counting, down, they were counting off their ex-servicemen's um, welfare mm-hmm. rights. And they just came up with this estimate, esti- estimate that 12,000 had gone home. And because there's no... There's no more very, very sort of accurate figures for that. That's the figure I took from mm-hmm. uh, from the British sources. Mm-hmm. Again, I think by way of background, we should tell our listeners that there's nothing unusual at all or suspect about um, Irish people going to live in the UK. This is a no, very no, this is a very common thing. It's a very, very common thing. I yeah, mean, so. the Irish were and still are by far and away the biggest um, ethnic minority in the UK. It's just that they're not considered an ethnic minority because we yeah. speak English. And they have and their own football like clubs and things. And <laughs> <laughs> they play games. Well, yes, they have Celtic, Celtic <laughs> yeah, right. and Glasgow and they have Hibernian yeah. here in Edinburgh. And yeah, right. That, ca- that can cause its own problems. Yes, no, I imagine it can. But I, again, I think it's important to understand also about neutrality. One of the things I liked about your book is you point out that this wasn't a particularly unusual thing either. There were several European states that declared neutrality. Well, there were, of course, there was like a ring, almost periphery states that were neutral, so obviously Ireland, the Scandinavian countries, apart from Norway and Finland, obviously, um, you know, Spain, Portugal, uh, Turkey. These were all countries, these were peripheral countries who were not the richest, not the most prosperous, who wanted to stay on the margins of the mm-hmm. war. But where I think Ireland is unique is I couldn't find any other European neutral that had such a close economic and cultural mm-hmm. relationship with the belligerent, which is right next door. Mm-hmm. And no other, no other neutral country contributed so many men to one of the belligerent armed forces. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just think, in, you know, I mentioned all this because I think in the mind of many Americans, and I don't mean to cast aspersions on Americans, is that they, you'll really have to pardon me for this, but they still think of Ireland sort of as part of, you know, they, they don't separate it from what they would call England. You know, they don't, they don't, they're not, no. they don't really exactly know what the UK is. You know, I mean, it's, I get, no, and that's, you see, that's understandable because yeah. obviously with Northern Ireland still being part of the UK and there's, there's a land border, but there's no, these days there's no actual border. You can just drive yeah. across it. We don't yeah. have to stop. Yeah. But also that the fact that the Republic and um, the Republic of Ireland, the Southern 26 counties is, you know, very close in culture and in yeah. language and religion to Britain. So there's yeah. very little, if you stand an Irishman beside an Englishman, if they don't speak, there's very little to tell us apart. So I can understand that the people yeah. get yeah. confused. And as you said, Irish history is extremely complicated. <laughs> yes. And how, so um, these fellows uh, go to war uh, and then, and then they come back. What do they come back to? There are actually some surprising things here. Yes. Well, these Irish men and women who came back, um, they faced two main problems. Uh, the first was a very, very, the first were very very practical problems. So once they came home, uh, once they decided to come back to Ireland, as in not not stay in the UK, they were almost totally cut off from British post-war ex-service benefits. So uh, British veterans after the Second World War, they received um, resettlement grants. They got low interest business loans. They got very very good free health care. Um, they got state jobs, pensionable jobs, and they got free access to immigration schemes all over the world. So if Irish veterans stayed in Britain, they would they would get that. If they came back to Northern Ireland. 
they would get that. If they came back to the South, they came back to ERA, they became almost totally cut off from all those concessions. Mm-hmm. So it was a real big personal decision to come back to the South. Um, there was, a, there was a, 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 an agreement much later on in 1947-1948 that the, between the Irish and British governments that the British government would pay limited amounts of unemployment insurance to Irish veterans. But that was only very, very once off. So they, they faced a huge sort of economic difficulty in coming back to Ireland, coming back to their families or for whatever reason they came back. But certain companies such as Guinness and some of the banks, they would often hold open jobs for Irish volunteers. But for the men and women, who, who the majority who didn't have jobs to come back to, many of them left because they didn't have jobs in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, they were coming back to a country where the economy had slumped very badly during the war. Mm-hmm. So jobs were scarce. Mm-hmm. And, and they were often... Go on, sorry. I was going to say, and this was particularly... I, I, I was going to say galling, but perhaps confusing for them because right across the border, I just put that in air quotes, uh, in <laughs> Belfast, uh, people were getting full benefits. But this is it. I mean, if you come back to Dundalk, you come back to Loud, 30, 40, 50 miles away, your comrade from the war is going to be, get, is yeah. going to be first in the queue for, for all sorts of un- or ex-servicemen and benefits. But the problem that Irish veterans of the war had when they came back to Ireland is that they were often like last in the queue yeah. behind a very long queue of demobbed men from the Irish forces, mm-hmm. which had expanded from around 7,000 in 1939 to up around 40,000 at its height during the war. Mm-hmm. And the Irish government was committed to providing all sorts of ex-servicemen benefits to ex-members of the Irish forces mm-hmm. and viewed, uh, viewed Irish veterans of the British forces as very much Britain's responsibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they didn't, they didn't single them out or discriminate against them in any way, but they paid very little actual attention to them. So mm-hmm. a, lot of them, a lot of the men and women faced very, very severe economic difficulties when they came back simply because they fell into the grey area between, two, between the two countries and, and between two welfare systems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How, how were they received by the, the public, if we can speak that way? I'm sure they were taken back into their families just fine, but um, you, know, you, can, you talk a little bit about uniforms, and there's obviously some reticence there to show that you were a veteran. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, the, the Irish public in general, it, it's a very interesting story how they dealt with, how they dealt with the ex-Irishman because... The experience of being neutral in Southern Ireland and the experience of being war in Britain or in the UK, it meant that the two populations had two very, very different experiences of the Second World War. So the cultural memory of the Second World War in the UK is about you know, the, the, the blitz on London, bombing, rationing, the, the V-bombs, all this sort of thing, the, the D-Day landings, Dunkirk. Whereas in Southern Ireland, very much the cultural memory is, you know, shortage of tea, shortage of, of coal and petrol, you know, trains running on turf, but no, no bombing, no invasion scares, that sort of very, very civilianized um, experience. Like Ireland did not become heavily militarized. There was no conscription mm-hmm. for the Irish forces. Mm-hmm. But they had two very, very different experiences of the war. Um, so that when Irish veterans came back to Ireland and they met and they talked to civilians, they found that Irish civilians really didn't understand their experiences. They couldn't really comprehend what they had gone through. They didn't have this sort of build-up store of of, of knowledge and of, of experience that would create a bond between the ex-servicemen and the civilian. And they found themselves very, very deeply misunderstood and felt themselves marginalized by, by the Irish civilians. Mm-hmm. And I think, that, I think they found that a very, a very, very difficult and a very bitter experience that people wouldn't understand them. Yeah. One of the most interesting things in your book, I, I thought, and this might be a misreading or an exaggeration, is the extent to which uh, people in the South, as people in the Republic, didn't really know a lot about the war. That they they weren't terribly well informed about what had gone on. That's true. I mean, they weren't they weren't completely ignorant, obviously, to what was going mm-hmm. on because the 
because the British newspapers would have circulated within Ireland. But first of all, there was a very, very heavy uh, government censorship, which the Fianna Fáil government was very assiduously maintaining for its own benefit. So it was blocking out the news that it didn't want the public to know and filtering through the news that would cast Fianna Fáil and Irish neutrality in a good light. Um, and secondly, uh, the Irish public knew sort of from letters from veterans, letters from their relatives in the UK and person-to-person contact, word of mouth, when people would come home on holiday or servicemen would come home and leave to talk, they would get that sort of news. But it wasn't constant, it wasn't in their face, there wasn't newsreels and every headline about the war. They had, they, they had, their, they had their own concerns that they were very much talking about. There was an Irish writer from Cork and he said that they were far more worried about the horrors of rationing than they were about the bombing of Berlin. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a very personalised experience. And when it came to uniforms that you mentioned there a minute ago, um, a lot of ex-servicemen would have come home and leave, had no civilian clothes and would have justifiably wanted to show off their uniforms to their families and to their friends. But it was a political decision by the Irish government to protect the image of neutrality, to ask them to try and get them to cover up and they put in an emergency powers order, which was essentially a decree which outlawed the wearing of foreign uniforms in Ireland. But the thing was, the, the Irish police, the Gardaí, did a survey among the Irish public, and they found that the Irish public had no problem at all with Irishmen coming home in their uniforms, and it was very, very unlikely to cause any problems. So the Irish public was fine with that sort of thing, but it was the government that decided it was a political decision to, to protect the image of Irish neutrality. So sometimes these things clashed in, in, you know, in policy and in perception. Mm-hmm. Well, they were, you know, it's interesting because the Irish government at the time reminds me a little bit of the, and this is probably a terrible analogy, but it reminds me a little bit of the Soviet government in the sense that they were uh, really very insecure. They, they were very afraid of, of what the population was, was going to think. And so they not only censored the news, but they did things which, I, I, you know, t- to an American at least, are kind of silly. Like they said you couldn't fly the British flag. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, look, looking back on it now, it, it does seem silly from the gap of 60, 70 years. I think what people forget, and you know, it's easy to forget, is that Ireland in 1939 was a very, very young country. It was yeah. less than 20 years old. And it had been born out of revolution yeah. against British rule. Yeah. And it's, it was very, very hard to just switch over from, you know, successive governments playing on their Republican credentials and playing on the fact that Eamon de Valera was a 1916 battalion commander. Uh-huh. And it was very, very hard then just to switch over on the 3rd of September 1939 to, oh, we're pro-British, yeah. everything is fine, we're on the side of the Allies. So it's, it's, it's much more relaxed now, obviously. I mean, the, the Union Jack flies in Dublin at the moment because yeah. Ireland is yeah. the president of the EU. And not a word has passed and yeah. it's all fine. Um, but in the 1920s and 30s, Ireland was an extremely young and yeah. very, it's okay to say it, a very politically immature yeah. country, which was still coping with the legacy of, of revolution and yeah. civil war, yeah. which basically was all directed against Britain. Right. Well, they were still in the process of gaining legitimacy among large swaths of the population, so it, it makes a certain amount of sense that they would be somewhat insecure about things like uniforms and the Union Jack and that kind of thing. Uh, well, the, the problem is, of course, Northern Ireland still exists, and obviously Dublin still claimed it up until, yeah. up until the, the, the Good Friday Agreement, yeah. Yeah. Ni- up until 1998. And then, of course, in the South existed the IRA, which also disputed the legitimacy of the of the Dublin government. So mm-hmm. things are very different. Um, so uh, what did the government itself think about the servicemen when they ca- came home? I thought well, this was very interesting as well. Well, the Irish government, like, it, it's worth making the point again that the Irish government, they, just, they didn't discriminate against them, they didn't single them out, they didn't victimize the servicemen in any sort of way. Very, very different story after the First World War mm-hmm. than it was after the Second. But after 1945, the Irish government was very, had very much the attitude of, we have no problem with veterans, but they're very much 
the British responsibility. Mm-hmm. So, um, for, uh, a good example is ex-servicemen, or sorry, veterans, when they went away to war, they would have stopped paying contributions into the Irish Unemployment Insurance Fund. Mm-hmm. And while they were in British uniform, were paying their contributions into the British Unemployment Insurance Fund. So when they came back to Ireland and tried to claim social welfare when they, when they couldn't get a job, they weren't allowed because they hadn't con- contributed to the Unemployment Fund for maybe five years. Mm-hmm. And the Irish government refused to change that policy. They said, I'm very sorry, but you, know, you paid into the British Fund, therefore it's the British that should, that should pay you. And there has been there's been a misapprehension, I think, and a and sort of rumor going around for many many years that the Irish government was, was very very harsh on on Irish servicemen, uh, on Irish veterans of the Second World War. And all I found in the in the government documents at the time is that the Irish government just simply said they're not our responsibility. We have no problem with them living peacefully and existing peacefully, but they're they're Britain's responsibility. Mm-hmm. That was their overarching sort of attitude during the whole period. Mm-hmm. Did they face any discrimination on the ground? In other words, among the kind of general population? Uh, some, of the, some of the veterans I talked to, because the book is based partly on oral interviews and, and, and oral history repositories around the country, some of the veterans I talked to said that they had run into limited amounts of hostility from what they called Republican elements. So if they knew people who were in the IRA or people who were in Sinn Féin, they would have been maybe verbally abused for, their, for serving the British, a very unsophisticated sort of outlook on their service. But most of them said they hadn't run into, run into any more than that hostility on the ground. There was some, there's some suggestions that there may have been religious discrimination for uh, when getting jobs or going for job interviews. You know, they would ask what school you went to, or your employer would say, were you in the British forces? And there was some suggestions that Protestants got jobs in certain places and Catholics got jobs in other places. Mm-hmm. And there was, a, there was a, a very rigid distinction. But because of the passage of so, of so many years and because of what happened in Northern Ireland in the 60s and 70s, people are very, very reluctant to talk about it. So I couldn't fully explore that, that avenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, your book, as you say, is based on um, a lot of oral histories, and you tell the stories of individuals. I wondered if you could tell us a few anecdotes or stories about people coming back. Well, <laughs> the problem is, which one, which one to pick? You can pick um, anyone you want. <laughs> there, was one, there was one very funny one, actually. It's, it's, it's funny that you should mention about discrimination on the ground. A lot of the men who would have, men and women who would have joined up would have been from the east, which is a much more anglicised part of the country. And there has always been a misapprehension that Protest, Irish Protestants were more likely to join the forces than Irish Catholics. Um, but it's not the case. It's the other way around. It's the, um, it's the, uh, mostly were Irish Catholics that joined the forces and, and a small minority then of, of everybody else. Mm-hmm. And um, the, a lot of them told the story of feeling very British in Ireland and then going abroad, joining the British forces and suddenly discovering their Irish. <laughs> and suddenly discovering that they were... You know, because they, they would join whatever arm of the British service and they would instantly be called Paddy. Yeah. That was just their nickname because of their accent and their outlook. So there, there was one man in particular who was an Irish, an Irish Protestant from a very affluent part of Dublin and he went abroad and joined the RAF and had a wonderful time by, by the sounds of it. Um, but suddenly discovered his, his green inner inner heart and became very, very, very Irish. And there was one particular part where um, the, there was, it was a Sunday and there was a religious parade, so all the various chaplains were coming in and the Catholics were all fell in and they marched off to Mass and the Jews all fell in and they marched off to their worship. And, you know, all the various religious denominations were being marched off to wherever they were worshipping that particular day. And the uh, Church of England chaplain comes in and says, well, I suppose everybody else knows you're all Church of England. And my veteran, his hand shot up and says, I'm Church of Ireland. Is that different? Is that different? And there was, 
there was much hilarity, but it's it's a very it's a very funny story in that he you know he desperately wanted to prove how Irish he was. Yeah. Having and he said he let, he grew up in a very pro-unionist household and felt very British and joined out of a sense of devotion, and then suddenly he was extremely Irish and he came back. <laughs> <laughs> did did since you mentioned some people becoming extremely Irish? Did did they? When the, the servicemen came back, I mean, there were a lot of them. Did they lean any particular way politically, or did any of them enter politics? No, that's one thing I found, is that there was no real, there wasn't enough to hold them together in a, in a sort of political way. So a lot of them would have just come back and slipped back into their old civilian lives. So there was one man who became a, a Labour senator. He entered the, the um, upper house of Irish Parliament and became a very, very successful Labour senator. But, I mean, I've spoken to Irishmen who were conscripted while they lived in Britain, who were staunch Fianna Fáil supporters and... Um, English servicemen living in Ireland who became Fianna Gael supporters and there was no sort of centre of gravity for them all to circle around there was no ex-servicemen party mm-hmm. in Ireland after mm-hmm. the Second World War so they, they, they just split up and settled back into the Irish political scene mm-hmm. I see uh, it is often the case uh, here in the United States and elsewhere that when veterans come home they hold commemorations of various sorts was there any sort of yeah. commemoration when they came back? No, I mean, the, the issue of commemoration in Ireland is always, always very, very um, contentious and very, very controversial because in the, 19, in the 1920s, obviously, 100,000 ex-servicemen came back to Ireland after the First World War. There was a lot of um, Armistice Day and, and Remembrance Sunday commemorations going on, and they were very, very often interrupted and heckled and, and challenged by, you know, left-wing Republican groups or the IRA or, or, or groups like that. After the Second World War, things had danced down quite a bit. The, the Irish government had pretty much smashed the IRA as an organisation, so there's much less trouble. But one of the major controversies was in November 1945, and the Irish government banned the annual, annual Armistice Day march, which went from the city centre out to the Memorial Park in Ireland Bridge. Which is a, it's a couple of miles of a march, but it's along the city centre. And the, the Irish government banned that because they said that there, there had been such trouble in Dublin after VE Day in May 1945. There had been a riot and various political groupings had clashed and, and a tricolour had been burned and a, a Union Jack had been burned by various students of different colleges. And it was terrible international publicity, caused a lot of damage in, in city centre of Dublin. Uh, Twelve people had been injured. So it was in response to that that the Irish government banned the commemoration in 1945, in November 1945, because they feared there would be a repeat and people would end up getting killed. And again, Irish headlines about pro-German Irish things would be plastered all over the world. So it was very, very difficult for them to congregate and to, to commemorate after after the Second World War. But as as the as the years went on and it became less and less important, things came more and more out into the open. And really, everything was fine through the 1950s and 1960s until the troubles in Northern Ireland exploded in 1969, which changed the game completely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was very interested in the VE Day riots, uh, particularly yeah. the role of uh, what we would call the United States college students or university students. Yeah. Um, it, it sounds like there was a lot of drinking going on and uh, the, the things, it reminded me a little bit of, uh, you know, occasionally in, um, this will sound like I'm trivializing it, but it's not, uh, when uh, big football games, that is American football, in certain towns, the students riot after the game yeah. is over. <laughs> they turn cars over and they burn them and, and things like this. Can you talk a little bit about what happened during that VE Day celebration? Well, yeah, well, what happened, obviously, is that VE Day is announced. There's, there's, there's widespread rejoicing all over all over Europe and in Britain. And there was a certain amount in Ireland as well, because a lot of the Irish population would have been very pro-Allied. You know, 
a lot of the Irish population would have realised what a disaster it would have been for the for Europe and the world for the for the Axis to have won the war. So there was a there was a number of celebrations going on. But it was particularly in Trinity College in Dublin, right in the heart of Dublin city centre, which was always associated and has always been had the label of a Protestant university for mm-hmm. the, the Irish upper class. And there was a fair bit of a fair bit of, of prejudice against it, maybe maybe just a little bit of jealousy. But what happened on VE Day was the flags of the Allied countries were flown from the flagpole at the top of Trinity College. They had an American flag, then a British flag, then a Soviet flag, funnily <laughs> enough. And then, then at the very bottom, apparently, according to the Irish press, was a very, very dirty tricolour. Yeah. And that was a very, very dirty Irish tricolour. That, that's a funny which, point uh, in the book. Yes, I read that. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. laughed out loud. <laughs> which ended up being taken down from the flagpole and partially burned and thrown from the roof oh, by boy. a bunch of... Uh, Overexcited and possibly, possibly, might be right, possibly, possibly drunk, drunk students. Yeah. Uh-huh. But there was uh, certain political groupings in the country at the time. One of them was the IRA, you know, the Sinn Fein, and another very, very right wing crowd called Altair and Hashagai, or Architects of the Revolution. Uh, sorry, Architects of the Resurrection. They would have taken offence at that. So there was a, there was a, a crowd press outside Trinity College. The crowd attacked Trinity College. They threw stones. They threw bottles. And the, the guards had to come out and, and clear the streets. But of course, what happened was it degenerated from a student protest into a, a much bigger thing. And the office of the British representative in Ireland, the office of the American representative in Ireland, were both attacked. Mm. The windows were smashed. And around around, around the city, you know, ha- uh, any shops that had Union Jacks flying, any shops that had any sort of allied things were attacked. And uh, legend has it that a very young Charlie Hawley, who had become a very controversial mm-hmm. piece of from the 1970s and 80s, um, legend has it that he torched uh, a Union Jack in Phoenix Park. Mm. There was there was scenes of disorder, not not a massive out of control right, but scenes of disorder. There were several baton charges, and there was more than the next day. Obviously, when the um, the factions had pulled off the streets, licked their wounds, and and, and plotted revenge. Mm-hmm. And what people tend to forget is that what drove it all was the underlying thing at the very very start was that it was rivalry between students and Trinity College, yes, right. and rivalry from the more working class University College Dublin. Uh-huh. And so this college rivalry tended to get out of hand and cause negative international headlines. Yeah. Well, this is another background piece that I think people will miss, the role of Trinity College in Ireland. Because even today, it's, it has a great valence. And, and Pete, you can tell that it's, its existence and, and its tradition, there's, that it, 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 it evokes a response from everybody. Yeah. And it's, it just, and it's hard to say what it is because it's, it's part of it is negative and part of it is positive and part of it is envy and part of it is, is, uh, has a religious feel. I mean, it's, it's a very odd institution because of the place it plays in, in the Irish mind. And it's, we have nothing like that in the United States. I mean, just nothing even yeah, close and to it's, it. In, in many ways, it's a wonderful, wonderful place. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, a fabric sure. of Irish history and Irish society and Irish yeah. education for, for hundreds of years, and yeah. it's a great place. But people do have very polarizing views towards it. Yeah, right? yeah. It really does, it really does evoke something, in, in, uh, and that's a very strange. So I was very interested to see that it happened there. It didn't surprise me particularly. Um, no. So, <laughs> well, interestingly enough, on VJ Day, then in September, in August and September, there was a, a minor disturbance in, in Sligo. Really? In, in, the, in the west of the country, and another flag was burned, and there was very little trouble on the streets. Huh. So you may be right, it may just be the incendiary mixture of <laughs> Trinity and, yeah. and, and flags that caused the problem. So. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, well, one of the most uh, fascinating parts of the book uh, was the, um, the fact that um, many of the people that returned were in fact deserters uh, yes. from the Irish uh, Republic, well, the, the Irish Army, let's call it that, yes. I don't, don't know what to call it. Um, 
And uh, th- this obviously raised the question for the government, what to do with these people? Well, first of all, well, why did they, uh, I, again, uh, this word desert sounds just too strong to me, but um, they were, okay. in fact, deserters. Uh, so why, why did they uh, leave the Irish army and then join the, um, the British army? Well, to explain that, you have to understand the position of the Irish army in, in Irish history and in Irish society. So the Irish army was, fa- was founded officially in 1922 when the Irish Free State was born. And the Irish Free State Army was set up. Now, the army basically grew out of the Irish Volunteers, which turned into the IRA. So, again, you're talking about Irish history being complicated. This is extremely complicated. <laughs> but the Irish Army, essentially, to put it into a sentence, would have been composed mostly of pro-treaty members of the IRA from the, the, the revolution. And then you add to that lots and lots of Irish veterans of the British forces. So, therefore, you have a very, a very mixed group. Now, during the Irish Civil War between 1922 and 1923, effectively the Irish Army got out of control and was responsible for a number of atrocities and a number of massacres. So it had a very, very low sort of public standing when the the Civil War ended and the the Irish government didn't trust it very much. The Irish government, the Cosgrave government in the 1920s nor the de Valera government in the 1930s didn't trust it very much. And in particular, the de Valera government didn't trust it because the de Valera government had many, many anti-treaty civil war figures in it which would have fought against the Irish army during the civil war mm-hmm. so it was a, it's a it was a very neglected a very mistrusted institution and it was very very small it was starved of funds it was starved of even a sort of a, an ethos the, no, no Irish government really knew what to do with it and they were afraid to overfund it in case it got out of control again so by the time war broke out in September 1939 it was very very small it was less than just under uh, 7,000 frontline troops at um, 12 anti-aircraft guns and three or four tanks. Mm-hmm. The, figure, the figures are hard to come by. And when I teach this in class, that always gets a bit of a laugh. <laughs> that, you know, just how small the Irish Army was. But I, you know, I always try to get across to the students that there were very, very good economic and political reasons why it was so small mm-hmm. and, so, and so underfunded and so distrusted by the government. But yes, it, is, it, was, it was, well, it was totally inadequate by September 1939. So the government, from June 1940 onwards, the government pushed through a, a rapid expansion plan but by that point, it was way too late because the British didn't have any weapons to... They didn't have any weapons to spare. They didn't have any weapons they wanted to sell to Ireland. And the Americans were very reluctant to sell weapons to the Irish against the wish, wishes of the British. So it was a very difficult expansion plan. But it expanded from around that 7,000 up to... At its peak, it was just over 42,000. And mm-hmm. it was an infantry-style army. And the most of the recruitment came between June 1940 and December 1940 when it actually looked like Ireland would be in trouble, when Ireland would um, run into the sands and would probably be invaded. Mm-hmm. But once, once, the, once the invasion scare began to pass, and particularly after Barbarossa, after June 1941, when mm-hmm. the German forces invaded the Soviet Union, it became clear that the focus of the war had shifted away from the British Isles. Mm-hmm. And the threat of invasion got less and less and less. And as the threat of invasion got less and less, the Irish army had less and less to do. So... When, when the threat of invasion was high, they had plenty of money to go and maneuver. They were, they were practicing in, in their defensive positions. There was a lot going on. As the government realized that Ireland wouldn't actually be invaded by the Germans or by the British, they gave the army less and less money as they, as they felt it was a waste of time and a waste of money. Mm-hmm. And as the army got less and less money, therefore, it was able to do less and less things. And it got, throughout the war, it got progressively crippled by the shortages that were already mm-hmm. affecting Ireland. Mm-hmm. But they didn't have much petrol, they didn't have much rubber for tires, they didn't have much steel or much um, ammunition. And as the army got more and more immobilized, the more that the, the men that joined us got more and more disaffected. Mm-hmm. 
And of course, what always happens is that the, the Irish government couldn't resist the temptation of using this large pool of trained manpower who aren't going to be used for defending Ireland anymore. They couldn't resist using this captive workforce and they put it to work clearing timber, cutting turf, mm-hmm. um, clearing away rubbish in some cases, disposing of animal carcasses. And the Irish army did more and more and more non-military things. Mm-hmm. And that, the more and more that happened, the more the men got disaffected. And rough, somewhere between six and 7,000, again, they're not sure of the figures because there was a, the, because of the border with Northern Ireland was so hard to police. But somewhere between six and 7,000 just left their posts and vanished from the army. Mm-hmm. Most of them were gone for four years or more. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the main motivation of most of these men who deserted was they were very, very dissatisfied with what was going on, that they had joined up to defend their country in a very you know, in patriotic rush, and they were being used in manual labor and menial tasks, which you know, denigrated their military service. But also there was the fact that the British forces paid much higher than the Irish forces. Mm-hmm. The starting salary of a British private if he was training in Northern Ireland, it was 22 shillings. The same, same rank, the same job in the Irish Army was 18 shillings. Mm-hmm. And because married men weren't allowed to join the Irish Army for the duration of the emergency, there was no separation allowances, there was no marriage allowances, there was no extra money paid for children. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine if, you're, if you've joined to defend your country, you end up cutting turf in a bog or driving a bus for a civilian. Mm-hmm. And you look across 30 or 40 miles across the border two or three of your mates from your locality are in the British forces and they're driving tanks and they're you know, looking at spitfires and they're serving abroad. The, the need and the pull for adventure and, and the want to do something with your life, I think it overwhelmed a lot of them and they, they, they went across the border. The thing is, though, we're not sure how many of them joined the British forces and this, this is the crux of the argument that's gone on at the moment. We can be sure that a lot of them did, probably, probably walked over the border or drove over the border and joined the British forces, but we don't know how many. And... Until we know how many joined the British forces, then we'll never have a definitive answer on, you know, exactly why they left or what they did when they left. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, when they came back, they uh, presented the government with a problem. That is, uh, yes. what, what, what to do with these people. There's really kind of a dilemma. Yeah, I mean, it was, it's, a, it's a fascinating situation. It's a fascinating and tragic situation because these men, and they were all men because women weren't allowed to join the forces, um, these men... They had left the Irish Army at a time of national emergency. The, the Second World War in Ireland is called the emergency because a state of national, nas, national emergency was declared for the duration of the conflict. But they, they officially and technically they had deserted the country at a time when the country was in, in danger. But at the same time, they were doing what they were doing openly, what the Irish government was doing secretly, which was helping out the Allies. So I think that the Fianna Fáil government, they felt like they couldn't they couldn't not punish them. They couldn't let them away with deserting from the Irish forces. But at the same time, they didn't want to go over the top. They didn't want to, you know, the, the penalty for desertion at the time was manual labor, six mm-hmm. months um, manual labor. And they felt that that would be, it would be counterproductive in terms of costs, counterproductive in terms of, you know, international impact. And it would have a huge impact on Irish, um, on the Irish image abroad if veterans of the British forces who may have you know, fought against Nazis and who might have been there at the liberation of Belfast, something like that, if they then came back to Ireland expecting here as welcome and were, were put in jail for six months. So it, it presents them with a bit of a dilemma. So they felt they had to be punished, but at the same time didn't want to, to punish them too hard or even to be seen to be punishing them. So I think that's why they came up, up with the route of the Emergency Powers Order number 362, which was, uh, it was a decree signed by de Valera himself he signed it on the 8th of, 8th of August, 1945. And what it said was that um, 
everybody who had been found to be absent from the Irish forces for more than 180 days on the 8th of August was summarily dismissed. So they were booted out of the army, but no, no appeal, no trial, no sentence. They were just summarily dismissed. Mm-hmm. And this meant that they, were, they didn't get any gratuity after the war, because the Irish me- members of the Irish forces, when they got the email, they got a cash payment, a cash gratuity. So they didn't get a gratuity. They were deprived of their pensions and allowances um, from the day that they deserted onwards. So whatever money was coming to them for the service they did do in the Irish forces, they got. But everything that was due to them after they deserted, they lost. And the most controversial bit of all is that they were barred from any form of government employment for seven years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the bit that has that has really caught attention recently. Mm-hmm. Did did uh, I have two, uh, two questions about the reaction to this? What, what did the fo- I mean? You can imagine the headlines in 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 London about this. Uh, did did the, did the did the English press react to this? Did they raise the hue and cry? Or um, there was there was a certain there was a certain muted reaction to it. In that um, there was a, first of all there was a reaction because several Irish army deserters had been arrested as they came back into the country and had been sentenced. Mm in court-martials and sentenced. And I think nine or ten records still exist of those court-martials and, and they don't make very very pretty reading for mm-hmm. any Irish historian. Um, so those, those headlines were already there. So when he signed the decree, um, it had an impact on the political circles in Britain because the, the British politicians took, took notice of the fact that, um, you know, that men who had served in their forces were, were, being, dis- were being treated badly in Ireland. But also, yes, it appeared in some of the British tabloids saying that, mm-hmm. you know, another example of Ireland's yeah. pro-Nazi stance, that sort of thing. Yeah, no, I can, I can that's, that's interesting. And then how did the Irish uh, pu- public react to this, to the, to the order? But there, there was an interesting, very ambivalent reaction to the Irish public thing, because like I said, there was this widening of the gap, of, of a sort of perception gap between the Irish and British publics. And to the Irish public, it seemed the, the sort of overall consensus was that, you know, these, these men had done something wrong, so therefore they needed to be punished. And again, going on from that, there was a sense that the punishment they were getting wasn't really that tough. Mm-hmm. That if, if normal justice had taken its course, they would have been arrested, court martials would have gone to jail. Mm-hmm. And because they, had, because they had a criminal record after that, then they wouldn't have been able to get a job anyway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but at, at the core of the whole thing, you see, is this idea of the military discharge certificate. I don't know if, um, if you came across that in the book. Mm-hmm. The idea is that the Irish government set aside a vast amount of civil service jobs from very, very low to up to very, very high uh, jobs for ex-members of the Irish forces after 1945. Mm -hmm. But to qualify for these jobs and to get them, when you went into your interview, you had to bring your military discharge certificate, which was a piece of paper detailing your your military service and how well you had done and if you had any black marks on on your service records. So the men who deserted from the Irish army and were then dismissed by emergency power orders 362, they automatically forfeited their right to this discharge certificate. Mm-hmm. They couldn't get state jobs at all. And they couldn't get any of these state jobs that were reserved for ex-Irish Army. So this extra layer of punishment, this seven-year ban, it was, it was almost redundant, if you know what I'm trying to say. It was, it was almost like an extra layer for, for almost for public consumption. Because the, explaining the whole idea behind the military discharge certificate is extremely complex and complicated, and you can't put it in a headline. Mm-hmm. But the Irish government, under De Valera, I think they could say, look how stern we are being with these deserters if they added this seven-year ban mm-hmm. on government employment. But my argument is, and I have to say not many people agree with me, but my argument is that um, it, was, it, was, it was a bit redundant because these men were not 
they were not going to get these jobs that they were being barred from anyway. Mm-hmm. If that I makes see. any sense. I see. Yes, no, it does. Now, one of the most fascinating things about the book is the, uh, I can't remember what you call it, an, a, a, an epilogue. It follows the conclusion, and it is about um, the reappearance of, of just this issue. Even today, uh, you know, yeah. the, the past is always with us. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Well, there has been an ongoing campaign for quite a while, up to 2006, to have Irish soldiers who were executed in the First World War, uh, over 200 of them, to have them um, pardoned. A lot of them were, were, were shot for cowardice when they were actually suffering from shell shock, things mm-hmm. like that. And that ran for a long time, and that was successful in 2006. And the British government rescinded the, um, rescinded the, the verdicts and, and issued an apology. So I think it was basically the same people. They, they moved on into the Second World War, and they saw this, what they, what they saw as injustice. And they started a new campaign. It was called the Irish Soldiers' Pardon Campaign, World War II. And they had been they had been campaigning very vigorously for a number of years. And then in 2010, we had a change of government in Ireland. And Fianna Fáil, for the first time in a long time, were voted out. And in fact, they were annihilated at the polls. And a new coalition government of Fianna Gael and Labour came in. And traditionally, it may or may not be true, but traditionally Fianna Gael is seen as, as more, uh, more pro-British than, than Fianna Fáil. Mm-hmm. So... Um, the new Minister for Justice and Defence, a man called Alan Shatter, announced his intention that he was going to issue a pardon to all Irish army deserters who had joined the British forces during the Second World War. And then he issued an, a government apology for this, this emergency power order 362 and mm-hmm. the seven-year ban on employment. And it caused, it caused a great deal of debate and a great deal of, of, of argument in Ireland because he had advocates, advocates on both sides arguing that, you know, men men and women from the Irish Defence Forces were saying it's not fair that these men deserted during the Second World War and they get a pardon. And, and, and the argument on the other side is that these were men who went abroad and they fought against fascism and they fought against Nazism and they, you know, they did their part in the war against Japan and we can't punish them for that. And I'm, I have always tried to occupy the middle ground in all this and try to, and try to you know, bring the two parties together and say that you know, there's, there's a middle way to look at this. Because we don't know, as I said before, we don't know that all, every last one of these deserters joined the British forces. I mean, some of them, I think, went to jobs in the UK, or some of them just simply went home. So, you know, the, arguments, the argument over who should get a pardon and whether a blanket, blanket pardon and a blanket apology is appropriate, is, it's still ongoing. And mm-hmm. we, we still regularly get letters and correspond with people about this. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, did they call you in as an expert? Uh, no, unfortunately, I wasn't, called, I wasn't called in as an expert, as there are many, many more eminent professors in, still in Ireland um, <laughs> who are available for comment. Unfortunately, I was out of the country at the time, yes. but Alan Chatter did uh, very, very kindly give me a quote for the, for the back cover of my book, nice. and he was there yeah. at the yeah. launch as well. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's very nice. Um, uh, Bernard, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I really appreciate it. It's a, it's a terrifically interesting book. Uh, I, I was, I was, uh, yes, it's, it's very, it's a very interesting read. As I, as I said at the beginning, nothing is ever simple in Irish history, and it turns out that it's something as, as commonplace as demobilizing is, uh, is, is even complicated. So I want to congratulate you on, on the terrific research in the book, and I want to ask you our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, what is your next project? Well, at the moment, I'm working in the Scottish Centre for Diaspora Studies on a project that uh, investigates Scottish ex-servicemen after the Second World War and their participation in something that's called the Free Passage Scheme. So they got free passage to emigrate to the British Dominions after mm-hmm. the Second World War. So we're, we're, we're looking at a two-year project putting together the, just the Scottish element of that, where they went, why they went, and what they did. Mm-hmm. And I'm also trying to get a, a history of the, British, the Royal British Legion in Ireland. I'm trying to get that up and running at the moment, which hopefully will be up and running. What is the Royal British Legion? I don't know what that is. 
The Royal British Legion is the preeminent ex servicemen in association in Ireland oh. for ex members of the British Oh, Force. okay, yeah, okay. So it, look, it looks after the ex servicemen themselves, their health care, the medical care, uh-huh. and their, their dependents and their families. I see, I see. Well, there's I, never been a. Go on, sorry. I was going to say, that sounds, that sounds fascinating as well. No one's ever worked well, on it? No, no, there's no history ever written of it, and if I can get it up and running, it'll probably be the first one that was ever written oh, on that's it. Really, that's really terrific. Well, I, I, I wish you the best of luck on that. Um, today we've been talking to. Bernard Kelly, about his book, uh, Returning Home, Irish Ex-Servicemen After the Second World War. I want to thank everybody for listening. This has been New Books in History.